quick disclaimer, there's a somewhat prominent allusion to sexual assault this week. Nothing explicit, but it is a plot point. Please see the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up the story of Fatima, warrior woman. You'll see that the best way to reconnect with your family is apparently beating up dad, and that you should just go around rubbing household objects because you never know what might contain a genie. The creature this time is yet another hairy naked man living in your woods. This one, though, you might want to let in your house, as long as you don't try to clothe him. This is Myths and Legends, episode 334. The enemy of my enemy is my enemy. is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Last week, we met Fatima, a girl born to the co-chieftain of the Bani Kalab tribe. She was kidnapped with a few of her people in a war with the Bani Tay and enslaved at a young age. She grew up learning the ways of warriors in secret, though, and took to raiding her own home tribe gaining her freedom and then renown. Last week, we closed with her having captured and shamed her own father, Moslem. This rules, Moslem, Fatima's father said, and then he spat on the dirt. Oh, that's, that's a tooth. Without knowing exactly that this was her father, Fatima reportedly felt it. She tried so many times to kill the man during their fight, but her heart would beat faster and her hand would go limp. Me too! Moslem's grin had a gap. God be praised for giving me such a lioness. You said she was a burden because she was a girl, Suda shouted. Moslem held up his hands, uh, okay, that was before he knew how awesome she was. That's not better, Fatima said. Moslem's head drooped. Look, he was sorry, really sorry. He had been cruel and ignorant. He was so glad he was able to meet her. He was still bound on a pole, and Fatima picked up the axe. She said she had a duty. She knew what she must do. She swung the axe, and it severed Maslam's ropes. He breathed. He thought she was going to behead him. She said that was the mislead. Nope. They were going home. It wasn't three days before the bulk of the Bani Tay caught up with Fatima and her household, like one of her grandmothers, she had left in the night to give her time to put distance between the tribe that raised her while well, she rode to the tribe that she had been born into. She didn't know what response this would garner from her adoptive tribe, but her fears were confirmed when she saw the warriors on horseback. Ahmed rode out front. Fatima was a traitor. What did the Bani Kalab leader say to make her do this? Fatima smiled. He's, he's her father. Ahmed's jaw dropped. Aww. He turned his horse around. Everyone, stand down. It's her father. A collective aww went up from the army. And Ahmed said, 
you know what? He understood her defection. She should go be with her own people, with her family. He understood anyone who wanted to follow her, and if he didn't have loyalty and responsibilities to his tribe, he would follow her too. The time he had spent in her presence had been an honor. Maybe, in the future, their tribes need not be enemies. She nodded back. From that day forward, in our story at least, there were no more attacks between the Bani Kalab and the Bani Tay. Salam, Fatima's mother, wouldn't leave her side. They had all thought Suda and the children had died, or worse, in the raids. Salam never expected to see her Fatima again, especially not riding in a saddle like a warrior. Fatima distributed her herds back to the people from whom they were stolen, but still had enough left over from the other raids, outside the Bani Kalab, to make her family fantastically wealthy. Then, they saw dust on the horizon. Salim. He's my evil half-brother with whom I co-rule the tribe, Moslem said to Fatima. Yeah, while you were captured, he was celebrating, Salam informed her husband. A hundred warriors rode behind Zalim, and there was another up front. Oh, Harid. He's the guy who beat you out for the inheritance, for the leadership of the Bani Kalab. The primogenitor and all that, Moslem shrugged. Also because your father told everyone you were a dead boy, Fatima's mother crossed her arms. Sorry, Moslem mouthed in silence as the pair rode up. Moslem and Salam greeted the brother and invited everyone inside, where servants prepared trays of food. They all took a seat. And Zalim laughed off the idea that he was celebrating his brother's death. It was comforting to the people, a show of power to demonstrate that everything was okay. He knew the Banite couldn't kill his brother because he had tried for so many years. The brothers laughed. Fatima sneered. Harid, between arriving and the dinner, Fatima had dressed in women's clothing. She hadn't worn that since the day she killed Quari, the Banite warrior. The way Harid looked at her, he reminded her of Quari. He had better watch himself, lest he end up the same way. He had the same ideas, though. She caught him staring at her throughout the night. His invitations were incessant after that, for her to come and share a meal with him. Only at the pleading of her parents did she relent, and then she only stayed the minimal amount of time to be polite. A few days later, her father arrived with news. Harid wanted to marry her. She laughed in her father's face, telling him that she was made for fighting, not betting. She would only sleep with her sword by her side. She would never marry. And then she grew serious. If her father ever brought the subject up with her again, she would go live in the desert. Moslem begged her forgiveness, saying that he wanted what she wanted. But he could only do so much. There are a lot of politics we aren't going to go into, but there was fighting among the various groups, and some people supported one caliph while others supported another. It was actually because of Fatima, according to this story, that the Bani Kalab navigated the situation effectively and found themselves at the favor of the new caliph. And in his presence in Baghdad, 
was where she and Moslem were sandbagged. The favor of the caliph that she earned was used against her. So, your son is super sad because he wants to marry his cousin, the advisor to the caliph said. Zolim made a pouty face and nodded. Harid limped forward. Why, why is he limping? The court demanded. It was just a small thing where Fatima said if he wanted to marry her, he had to beat her in a fight. He was dragged unconscious from the match. His face was still a little puffy. Fatima was able to speak in her own defense, that she wanted to fight, wanted to be free. She didn't want to stay at home and serve this man. Harid stepped forward. He knew. That's why he loved her. He would look on her with admiration, like the sky, not trample her beneath his feet like the earth. The leaders held up their hands. Well, there you have it. People can't simply say things that aren't true. In the end, their minds were made up. Zalim had spent the year since Sasa's death, securing the largest part of the wealth and power left behind. And the leaders knew that they needed the loyalty of the Bani Kalab and its 20,000 warriors. They asked for Fatima's consent to marry Harid. When she did not give it, they said her silence would serve as consent. Fatima and Harid were married. Harid didn't have time to relish his victory, though, because just as the quote-unquote wedding was finished, word came. They were under attack. The Byzantine Empire was at the gate. Not their gate, the gate of the city of Amida, modern-day Turkey. Raiders had come from the west. Tens of thousands of warriors strong to sack the city. We will deliver the city, Fatima rose. Harid stood confused as Fatima summoned the war council that followed her out of the room. What about wedding night? They rode for 30 days until they reached a city about 150 kilometers away from Amida. That's where they learned about Malatya. They have a Christian you? Moslem barked. Fatima said no, there was no other her. I don't know, Marzouk, her adoptive brother, chimed in. Warrior princess, leads raiders. She even captured a city. She really sounds like a you. She's not a me. Stop saying that, Fatima shook her head. This might have been the first time Fatima was hearing about Malatya. But Malatya had heard about Fatima. In fact, word was she was hoping to challenge Fatima. She knew that if Fatima fell, the whole region would be theirs. She and her sister, Bagda. Malatya had Amida under siege, while Bagda, seemingly following her own interpretation of the Christian Bible, had sacked a nearby city, capturing its people with threats of violence and actual violence and chaining them up so they'd convert. Fatima sent half of her force to go relieve Amida. She would meet up with them in time. She couldn't let women and children get sold into slavery. Like we had been, ah, I see why we're doing this, our character's motivation, her adoptive brother said. Oh, sorry, yes, what's the plan? The plan was, ride really fast, through the night. It was super dangerous, but they had to get out ahead of Bagda and her captives. And they managed to. Bagda's scouts didn't spot her, and Fatima tore through not just Bagda, but everyone else. You're free, the adoptive brother cried out to the cheering people as Fatima was shaking Bagda off her spear. Uh, no, no they're not, Fatima called out. Bagda's body thudding on the ground. Oh, sorry, you're not, the adopted brother shrugged. He turned around and Fatima was already removing the armor of the corpse. Did this look like it would fit her? 
you late, Bagda, one of the Byzantine warriors said to the woman wearing Bagda's armor and leading Bagda's prisoners. The leader of the warriors looked at Bagda's armor and the blood and the hole. What happened? Fatima's eyes widened behind her helmet. Uh, had a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? The Byzantine soldier stepped back, scanning all the faces he was just now realizing he didn't recognize. He was going to go get a squad of warriors to escort the prisoners into the city. Fatima's eyes grew wide. Negative. Negative. Uh, she brought the sword down on the guard. Boring conversation anyway. Marzouk, we're going to have company. They did. When the rest of the city realized that they weren't the good guys, you know, the ones enslaving people, but the bad guys, freeing people, and attacked. But Fatima and the others had the element of surprise, and the gates were already open. The Byzantines fled. Once the city was secure, Fatima knew they must ride to Amida to relieve the siege. There, she would face Malatya, the Byzantine warrior princess, her doppelganger from the wet. Wait, she, she's dead? Fatima was stunned to find these smoldering remains of the Byzantine encampment. Abdullah, one of their other commanders, had managed to fight his way inside the city using a small contingent of forces, but he brought with him terrible news. The Byzantines had discovered the source of fresh water the city was using to outlast the siege, and they were in the process of stopping it up. It will be a matter of days until, dying from thirst, the residents would have to throw open the gates. So, Abdullah came up with a plan, it was risky, but they had all the citizens of the city bring their oil to the catapults by the wall. They flung the oil out into the enemy's encampment at the same time that they opened the gates, sending a vanguard of archers with flaming arrows, followed by a Helm's Deep-style last stand. And you won? Fatima asked, dismounting. They did. She said that was great, just thematically not what she was expecting. You know... She thought she'd have a big battle and all that with someone equally matched. But it's cool, though. Great. Let's clean up. Hey, honey. Since, you know, the war's over, Harid said, riding up to his, well, the woman who was technically his wife. I was thinking that since we're husband and wife and the war's over, you thought, what? Since you maneuvered yourself politically to force me to be your wife? She walked toward him. He backed up. She said, well, what? She was going to make him say it. Consummation? Consummation, she said. She kept walking toward him, and he kept backing away from her. More people were watching him now. I saw you over there, Fatima said, practicing this, stealing yourself for it. How did you think it would go? Did you think it would end with you covered in dung? What? Harid asked, as his heel caught a rock, and he flailed backwards into the pile of dung. Fatima walked away with a smirk. Harid ran away, and the surrounding warriors laughed. the evil wizard of our story, but that will be right after this. 
Fall is here, and that means it's time to break out the layers. Ah, layering season. It's a favorite, and so is Bombas. Because Bombas makes the season easy with socks, tees, and underwear that not only feel good, they do good as well. True. Every item purchased from Bombas gives essential clothing to someone who needs it. One item purchased equals one item donated. So maybe you check out Bombas for their mission. If that's not enough, I will tell you that Bombas legitimately offers better made clothing than we've found anywhere else. Personally, I love the fit, the cushion, not too tight, just right. And the fact that my socks from Bombas don't get gross and wet from the day. Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe that's weird to talk about, but it's true. I mean, breathable cotton. There is a difference. Also, they last. Yeah, I've got new patterns, of course, but then I also have pairs from eight years ago. They're still going strong. So plush, so smartly made, no toe seams or t-shirt tags, and all with the Bombas 100% happiness guarantee. The only choice to make is what color you're going to wear today. And that feels good. Literally. Go to bombas.com slash legends and use code legends for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash legends and use code legends at checkout. These days, audio is the way to go. Hi. I could be driving or working out, grocery shopping or making dinner. You know, it doesn't matter. It's more fun, more entertaining with Audible. Audible lets you enjoy and discover a full range of audio entertainment, all in one single handy app. There's always something that grabs my attention, too. Either more of what I love or something new I discovered. As far as storytelling goes, I mean, Audible is right up your alley. Oh, yeah. You can dive into an audiobook from any number of genres or get into thousands of podcasts, theatrical performances, comedy, maybe even an Audible original from renowned experts or top celebrities. It's all there at your fingertips. Including The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. That, yes, was my chosen title this month to keep as an Audible member. I could have picked the latest bestseller or a new release, but this title, this version read by Andy Serkis, Golem himself, is amazing. So now my son and I have been listening to it on the way home from school. It is awesome. Takes you from the traffic jam to the Shire as soon as you hit play. It's like another world. Plus, Audible members get full access to a growing selection of included titles, so you can download or stream those all you want. Right now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash legends or text legends to 500-500. That's audible.com slash legends or text legends to 500-500. You're Ukba, right? Harid said to the man in the wizard robes, sitting across from him at the table. Ukba blinked. Well, Harid said, well, your servant set up this meeting with Ukba, and I'm here at the time, and your servant isn't like, who is this? This isn't Ukba. I was not expecting you. Okay, just chill out, Harid said. He was told that Ukba had the stuff. Yeah, the drug to rape. Walid held up his hands. Whoa. Okay, maybe a little discretion. Wow. Everyone was right. This guy was the worst. Ukba arched his eyebrows. You're the guy buying stuff to help my wife relax so we can consummate our marriage. Harid smiled nervously at his servant. Ukba shook his head. Ugh, this guy. Ukba was not better. He just knew what he was. He accepted it. His mother, when she was pregnant with him, had a dream. When she consulted the wise ones of her tribe, she learned that her son would be a monster. He would cause discord and strife, he would be corrupted and corrupt others, and when everyone finally had enough of him, he was 
soft exiled and encouraged to go travel the world, just like leave and never come back. He was extremely intelligent, and it's said that he immediately memorized everything he saw. He learned not just his own religious texts, but every religious text. He learned medicine and, some say, even magic. There was no magic to what he gave Harid, though. Just a certain flower ground with blue sulfur. We don't need to linger long in this part. Walid convinced Marzouk, Fatima's milk brother, as he's called in the story, to put the mixture in her water skin when they were out hunting together. He helped Harid carry her back. Fatima's father was there when she woke up. She was stunned, betrayed. Obviously, Harid and his father, Zalim, were of one mind about it. Marzouk, though somehow justifying it in his head, initially as helping out the marriage of a friend, immediately felt bad about it. Moslem, Fatima's father, helped to talk her down from her murderous rage, though she made it clear to him and everyone in their family that if she ever saw Harid again, he was a dead man, even if she had to atone for it in hell. Over the next few months, she had to smile, smile and thank everyone for the congratulations throughout her pregnancy, pretend like it hadn't been something that was forced on her. Then, the birth. Her ladies and the midwife encouraged and comforted her, up until the moment of the last push. Then, there was silence. They asked what she had done. Fatima and Harid, the parents, were lighter-skinned, while the baby was of a much darker complexion. The women glanced away, knowing that this baby couldn't be Harid's. Fatima should be ashamed. They should take the baby and get rid of it so they weren't executed. Fatima took the baby into her arms, smiled, and said that they were right. This baby looked nothing like his father. He was a miracle. The translation by Melanie Magadow has a quote that's so perfect that I'm just going to say it directly. Fatima said, I am a respectable woman, always living with an awareness of my maker. I have no need for marriage. People can be angry or they can accept me. Either way, I have no control over their hearts. Clearly, whatever is happening here is in hands bigger than mine. She told them the circumstances surrounding the baby's conception. The women looked to the floor and they apologized for their accusations. They did fear for the child, though, and what people would say. Fatima also didn't want the father coming for him, so she would do what one of her ancestors had done. The child of Harid did not survive, and this baby would be raised by nurses. And he was, with Fatima visiting him regularly. She remained estranged from Harid, because, well, she would straight up murder him if she ever saw him, and when the baby named Abdel Wahad, was four, he asked the woman he thought to be his mother for a horse, so he could ride like the heroes. She smiled and said that she was just a servant, but she would take them to one of the leaders of their tribe. From that day on, Abdel Wahad spent each night talking to Fatima, and even though the baby was the exact age her own son would be, and half the woman in town knew he was actually her son, it still took Harid three more years, until the boy was seven, to realize that, hey, that's our child, or not, as he accused Fatima. 
the child did not look like him. She had, obviously, been unfaithful. Fatima didn't falter. She didn't fear. She calmly told Harid that he knew the circumstances behind the boy's conception, and, however the boy looked, he was perfect. And it was God's doing. The story says that God erased the flowers in varied colors, and people as well. They are beautiful. Her fear was for her people, that they might solve a problem by committing a crime and killing a mother and child. Moslem, for all his faults when she was a child, knew it was time to step forward and protect his daughter. He said it wasn't fair what Harid did to his daughter. And while it wasn't technically illegal, it was immoral. God had obviously meant this evil to bring forth a blessing and could forgive any sins, any except the destruction of a good soul. The people who Harid had gathered and worked up were now confused. Moslem stepped forward with another proposition, Mecca. They would take the child to Mecca and seek the thoughts of the leaders there. They made it to Mecca and, after searching around for someone to take their case, one of the legal scholars there, Jafar, had a perfectly reasonable medical explanation for how the child ended up with a different skin color than his parents. He explained this to nearly everyone's satisfaction, and the child was accepted into the Bani Kalab tribe. They decided to let this issue rest and not talk about it anymore. Well, most of them did. Zalim and his son, the boy's father, were still incensed. They believed Jafar's explanation but they were more embarrassed than anything. So they said there was no way that they would abide by this ruling. So they went to jail, or they were about to, when Ukba bartered the caliph for their release. Hey, this is the guy that helped me seduce Fatima, Harid pointed at Ukba. Zalim grimaced, oh, is that what we're calling it? Ukba said that Harid and his father, they would never be taken seriously in these lands now. Ukba said he had an ongoing conversation with the Byzantines. Zalim had a private guard, right? The men said, yeah, what was he getting at? Ukba said that if they took their guard and captured the, the 50 or so people outside on the road between there and Constantinople, they would make a great gift to the emperor when they defected. The men looked at each other and then back to Ukba. De defected? Ukba said it was simple. They could stay here and be laughed at, or they could take their talents to Turkey. Is it called Turkey yet? Zalim cocked a brow. Ukba sighed, look, they can sit here and quibble about points like how it won't be called Turkey for a thousand years, or how they would be betraying literally everything about who they were. They could keep doing that. Then Ukba looked to Harid. Or he could wait for his wife and son to come murder him. He didn't care. Ukba really didn't. He only wanted to cause chaos and uncertainty because one, it was fun and he liked it, and two, when people were uncertain, they turned to unlikely sources for comfort. They turned to him. So that's how Zalim and Harid defected to the Byzantines. There was a problem, though. Among the group of people they waylaid and kidnapped was the son of one of their chieftains, Abdullah. Fatima, not really caring that her husband had defected, couldn't let the aggression against her hurt another. She vowed to go to Constantinople and get the kid back. 
Oh my gosh, yes. Byzantine Emperor Leo said. Fatima blinked. Uh, what? Yeah, I don't want to steal people's kids. That's straight up evil. Besides, it's not like I kidnapped him. There was that weird guy and his son that live out on the hills over there. Emperor Leo pointed. Fatima said she was expecting a lot more pushback here. Okay, wow. Yeah, that will be the hallmark of the interactions in the story, which will oscillate wildly between civil understanding and extreme violence. Emperor Leo reclined. Hey, he had heard she was great at fighting. While she was there, did she want to fight some of his guys? For fun? She did, and it was fun. She also rescued the Byzantine Empire from the King of Portugal, which just goes to show that the enemy of your enemy can still be your enemy. She stepped up and challenged the King of Portugal to a duel for the fate of the empire, won, and then walked away. She rescued Abdullah's kid, was briefly waylaid, and almost killed on the way home by Harid and Zalim, but saved when a grandson of the emperor who would never see the throne was praying and got a warning that Fatima needed his help. He saved her when she was doing a last stand thing, and Harid and Zalim were exiled from the Byzantines as well. Fatima arrived back home and began training her son. Hey, so I know you're going to town to pray, Fatima said to her now teenaged son, Abdel Wahab. You're going to want to avoid the pass that runs through the valley. There are some bandits in there. Yikes. All right, I'm going to go out and do a completely unrelated thing. Bye. Abdel Wahab clenched his fist. Yes. This was just his chance to try out his training. He had been working for years. The only person who could train him was his mother because he beat up his former teacher. I can just picture the guy on the floor, teeth scattered everywhere, tears in his eyes, not just because of the searing pain from several broken ribs, but pride. The legend of Abdel Wahab grew. He went hunting with his people and cut a lion clean in half, like a perfect cross-section. It was really impressive. But Fatima knew that fighting men was much more difficult than lions. Well, 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 Abdel Wahab heard when he rounded the corner to the valley. If it isn't Abdel Wahab, the kid who has to be asked three times to take out the trash. What? The bandits seemed to realize that they had started too specific and decided to walk it back a little. Well, 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 if it isn't Abdel Wahab, the human teenage boy, nope, not specific enough, Abdel Wahab, son of Fatima. Abdel Wahab lowered his spear. Your reign of terror in this valley is over, criminal scum. He charged. It was the single best fight of Fatima's life. Three punches in, she realized that she didn't need to hold back. And it was only her laugh and a hasty timeout motion with her hands that kept Abdel Wahab from driving a spear into his mom's neck. She rose, blood streaming from her smiling mouth, arms and side covered in cuts and bruises. Her son was ready. Ukba narrowed his eyes. How did this kid know all that? Ubaid smiled. He was just smart, he guessed. He wasn't. I mean, he was. What other people learned in a month, he could learn in a day. That's why Ukba selected him. But now, 
This kid was too smart. Ubaid was too smart because he did the early Middle Ages equivalent of stealing the teacher's answer book. When he learned a rare book that contained all of his teacher's knowledge was in the possession of one of his teacher's students, he did like a Bugs Bunny thing, where he dressed up as a beautiful lady to beguile the student and steal the book. It worked. He got the book, and he got himself sent to the front lines of the war with the Byzantines, because Ukba feared his knowledge. It was at Ukba's insistence to the man's father, a higher up in the tribe of the Bani Sulam, that he joined the battle. Ube was smart, he was. He was so smart, he knew all the dangers of a battlefield. You could be stabbed and killed, sure, but you could also be scratched, get sick and die, you could get sick in the camps, you get the bloody flux, you could get run over by a horse, you could... Ubaid was not the type of guy you want in your army because the other soldier within an earshot of him was hearing all of this and getting worked up almost as much as Ubaid. Then, an arrow. A single arrow landed in between them and it was too much. They both fainted. Ubaid blinked awake to all the screaming, smells, and terror of an early medieval battlefield, but there was one thing he wasn't expecting. He was staring into the eyes of a viper. Ubaid shrieked, and then he realized that the viper wasn't moving. It was dead. Mid-strike, it had been pinned and killed by the arrow. Ubaid rose. His father rushed over. What was his coward of a son doing? A battle was going on. Ubaid shook as he rose. But he didn't shake with fear. He shook with power. Power from knowing that... No matter what, death comes for us all. It's what you do with your time here that matters. There's no escape from death, he declared. Ubaid? His father asked. No, not Ubaid, not anymore. I shall be known as Al-Batal, Ubaid, or Al-Batal said, and ran off toward the battle. The hero, the father did a quick translation, Then he looked down at the dead snake. It looked like, contrary to his son's assertion, that there was no escape from death, he had escaped death twice in one go just now. As he looked to his son killing it on the battlefield by killing a bunch of people, the dad decided to not look a gift horse in the mouth on this one and rushed to join him. True to his new name, Al-Batal was the hero that day, and he distinguished himself to the point where Fatima and Abdul Wahab took notice. He and Abdul Wahab, roughly the same age, became close friends. And he was there for Abdul Wahab on the day when the young man had to kill his own father. Zalim, Abdul Wahab's grandfather, emerged from the desert, challenging his brother to a duel insulting Fatima. He said this all started when he hit her. Now, Zalim was going to finish it. Moslem had no choice but to answer the duel. And though he fought well, his brother was driven by anger and desperation. So, it was on that day that Fatima saw the one person left who really, truly understood her fall. He had always supported her after she came back into his life and beat him to a pulp. Now, she had to say goodbye. She cradled him as he died, and Abdul Wahab cut down his paternal grandfather when Zalim tried to take advantage of the situation and kill Fatima. 
Harid charged the battlefield, and even though Abdul Wahab begged him not to and held him off as long as possible, Harid insisted to the end that Abdul Wahab was not his son. With that final blow, Abdul Wahab became the leader of the Bani Kalab tribe. We'll see the two young men make a startling discovery, but that will, once again, be right after this. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. See? Secret Christian! Al-Batal gestured to the tiny church underneath Ukba's quarters. A tiny church! Little porthole stained glass, tiny chalices, single seat pews. It was as adorable as it was heretical. Real quickly, Ukba, the advisor to one of the tribes, was playing both sides in the conflict. Well, pretty much all conflicts. We've established this. It's pretty clear to me that this guy believes in nothing but himself. So I'm not sure why he had a secret tiny church underneath his house, but he did. Albatal burned himself. Ah, his candle was running low. They had to get out of here. Ukba had been growing in influence. No matter how many battles were fought, no matter how many personal connections were made between the tribes and the Byzantine Empire, the war churned on. And now Al-Batal and Abdul Wahad knew why. They went straight to the Caliph with the news. Ukba wasn't back in town for three days before he was arrested. He demanded to know what was going on. His service to the Caliph had earned him that much. We found the tiny church, Al-Batal pointed. You're going down for this, Ukba. Yeah, tiny churches aren't practical. When you consider the build quality, permitting, and land, you're almost at the price and complexity of a regular church. Abdul Wahab pointed. The room looked at him. Yeah, it was a tiny house bit, just trying to cut the tension, Abdul Wahab said. And Ukba said he needed to see this tiny church he was accused of possessing. When Abdul Wahab and Al-Batal threw open the door to the secret room, they found... <gasps> Tiny mosque! It's so cool! The people with them yelled. But the, the two warriors didn't understand. Ukba said what? He liked to have his own place of reflection and prayer. The caliph looked at Abdul Wahab and Al-Batal with a sneer. Get them out of my sight, he said. Ukba informed them of their exile when he brought the cushion, the one that Al-Batal had stained with his wax. 
he demanded compensation, well, before they were exiled, of course. Now, this is in the middle of a lot, and this particular episode is going to run long because even though I'm just skipping along the peaks of these mountains, the summaries of these stories alone are hundreds of pages. So, while Abd al-Wahhab and al-Batar are exiled today, tomorrow they're heroes after a great victory and Uqbah's on the outs. Sometimes Fatima's people are attacking the Byzantines. Other times the Byzantines are attacking them. Sometimes there's intertribal fighting. Sometimes there's intra-tribal fighting. It's like the Scooby-Doo doors bit, where, where sometimes Scoob and the gang are chasing the monsters. Sometimes the monsters are chasing them. Sometimes the Harlem Globetrotters are there for some reason. I posted the sources I used in the show notes. I'm going to tell two and a half more stories from today's saga before finishing up. The next one is the story of Nura. Abdul Wahab and Al-Batal dangled from the walls of the Castle of Blood, the castle of a lesser Byzantine king. They had moved through a forest populated by lions and snakes. They took those lion skins and covered boats to ford the moat. Now they were watching, what, women's wrestling. Is that like a euphemism for something? Abdul Wahab said, trying to swing over to see. Al-Batal was rooted. He knew they were here to assassinate some guys, but could they just like take a minute here? Don't don't be gross, Abdul Wahab said. Then he heard a, you ever hear about this Al-Batal guy from inside the keep? Al-Batal looked over to Abdul Wahab. What? Nura, the princess, said, yeah. She saw a picture of him up in one of the churches, you know, as a warning. He was not bad looking. She said she wished she could meet him. One of her ladies laughed. Oh, she had a crush. Nura laughed. Oh, yeah. Al-Batal, come join us wrestling. Don't, Abdul Wahab said. But Al-Batal was already through the window. The women were surprised and excited. Al-Batal introduced himself. Before they say it, yes, he was better looking than his picture. The women laughed playfully. He noticed that some of them were wrestling. Oh no, did he have anything he needed to worry about from such fearsome warriors? Abdul Wahab rolled his eyes from outside. The two women tackled Al-Batal and they actually wrestled for a bit before Al-Batal cried for help from his men. The half dozen other guys clambered into the room to wrestle. The two groups got along well. Very well. So well that they started to kind of couple up a little bit. Then things got weird. The women asked if they could tie the men up. The men said, weird, but yeah, no, they didn't care at all. Yes, anything. They did, and then the women relaxed. Got them. The men said, wait, did they just get captured? It was a massive victory for the Byzantines. In one hour, Nura had captured all their top commanders without spilling a drop of blood. Well, all but one of their top commanders. All but Fatima. If they were truly going to win the war, they would have to use Fatima's son as bait to draw her out. She was well known by now to be the most dangerous person in the world to her enemies. She was ruthlessly disciplined. But Nura was an expert tactician. She had heard the old stories. She knew that Fatima relished a challenge, so she would demand single combat against Fatima. 
And as much as I wanted to cut to another person dead or defeated by Fatima's hand, Nura was a challenge for Fatima. Not only was she Fatima's match for intelligence, power, and skill, but when she finally threw off her helmet, Nura made the men freak out. Fatima's own army was throwing rocks at Fatima during the fight because they couldn't stand her attacking someone so beautiful. Fatima, though, rushed Nura, picked her up, and ended the fight. And the rest of the Byzantines broke and ran back to the safety of the Castle of Blood. Fatima, though, had the bargaining chip she needed and negotiated with the king of the Castle of Blood, called such because it was carved out of a single red stone, for the release of her son and the other commanders. When they made it back, Fatima took account. That was... Wait, no. They were one short. Where was Al-Batal? He didn't want to leave, Abdul Wahab said. They all looked back to the castle, where the Byzantines were trying to throw Al-Batal out. Eventually, they managed to shut the door, but he stayed there for hours, pounding at it, begging for Nura to let him back in. He loved her. She said she really didn't love him. It was a ruse. Leave. No, Al-Batal called back. And according to one version, Nura spat at him, calling him a wretch. And then Al-Batal apparently caught it in his mouth, remarking that it was delicious. The hero, Al-Batal, is dead, the people said in modern-day Egypt. Call that priest that was just here. Al-Batal had been hunting Ukba, his former teacher, and the bane of both their people and the Byzantines for decades. He had actually married Nura after they captured her, and there were dozens of pages of guys catching and fumbling her, but he got her. And after she tried to poison him at their wedding, they were married. Now, though, he was dead. He had taken ill. The hero died a quiet death. His final quest unfulfilled. Wait, what did you say his name was? Ukba, the priest, looked at the body. Then his eyes widened. Wait! Al-Batal sprang up from the dead for the man who was supposed to pray over him. But Ukba bolted before he got close. The chase resumed. Ukba got away that time because he built automatons to stand guard over a tunnel's entrance. By the time Al-Batal defeated them, Ukba was in the wind. Ukba would bribe guards. He would ingratiate himself in unknown lands, inciting rulers and people alike. The world was a big, disconnected place back then, and Ukba was a polymath who understood a dozen languages. So with near limitless places to run, it looked like Ukba would be free forever. But three years later, there was a rumor of Ukba receiving sanctuary from a monk in Baghdad then escaping the city, posing as a man suffering with smallpox when he felt the net closing in on him. Finally, Al-Batal followed him to Constantinople again, where they were both detained. Their execution was delayed, though, because Constantinople was under attack. Again. When Fatima and her tribes learned that both Ukba and Al-Batal had been captured, they rushed to rescue one and execute the other. The two were freed, but not without heavy costs. And a four-year peace was negotiated between the two groups. Ukba, having finally run out of people to trick, and after his greatest defeat, prolonged peace in the area, 
was executed, but not before saying, I have no regrets in my heart. I have seen blood flow on both sides, which I can only imagine was an attempt to rope someone else in to incite a backlash, from which he could hopefully exploit the chaos to escape, with people pointing out that he wasn't going to take the route of tragic martyr. He incited most of that conflict, but they didn't do it. Him finally in their grasp, they executed him. And the heroes went home from Constantinople. Their trip, though, brought them through a mountain pass. In more dangers, when another king from the west, a man known as Hermes, a king from the islands, I'm assuming that's somewhere in the Mediterranean, attacked them and Constantinople, Fatima and Abdul Wahab fled into a cave where they were snowed in. And this looked like the end of Fatima until they found, at the back of the cave, a passage to a dead guy in a bed, a student of Ptolemy, a first century, I don't know, everything, scientist, mathematician, all that. The student had been there for hundreds of years, but he had a dream in his time and prepared for Fatima and the others. He made a jar of imperishable food, and as that began to dwindle for the survivors, they talked about what they would do if they escaped the cave. Fatima and Abdul Wahab said they would go on the Hajj every year. Other warriors said they would give to charity. Others said that they would fight harder. Then Fatima realized something. They had been in this cave for a month and hadn't suffocated. There was a way out. Following Minecraft rules, she broke the bed to harvest the parts to make a ladder to climb up when she saw something inside the bed. A tablet. It explained what I mentioned just a moment ago. That this guy was a student. He saw them coming. Also, rub the tablet. Real quickly, if you ever find yourself in an Arabic folktale or legend, rub everything. Lamps, of course, but rings, even tablets. Because when they did, a genie appeared. Then they were freed. Reading the attack from King Hermes as treachery, they transported themselves via genie to the heart of Constantinople, used the genie to rain down fire and stones, and finally... After decades of back and forth and constant war, they came away victorious. Constantinople was theirs. Fatima and Abdel Wahab made good on their promise and made the Hajj every year. Though one year, Fatima took ill. Advancing years, she was ushered to a city where, her son holding her hand, she died a legend. Abdel Wahab was beside himself with grief and followed her to the grave not long after. As a very brief epilogue, Albatal was the last of his generation and was there when not just Constantinople was retaken, but Amira and the other cities, wiping out all the gains of Fatima's lifetime. It's said that he wept day and night until he died, seeing the futility of war and conquest. a long one. Thanks for sticking with me. It could have been three episodes, but I don't really like to do that anymore, and the bulk of what we skipped over was kind of a lot more of the same. With friends becoming enemies, enemies becoming friends, Ukba keeps pulling the Joker and either escaping from captivity or disappearing. If you're interested, I posted some sources. The story did kind of become Fatima's sons and Al-Batal's story, but I do love the character of Fatima. She had a hard life and went through so much but she always stood for what she believed to be right. 
The situation with her son would have and has destroyed other characters in similar stories, but through sheer force of will and not backing down from what she knew to be the truth, she won over not just her tribe, but everyone, to the point that Zalim and her husband died as outcasts while she lives on as a legend. Yeah, she's awesome. Next week, we're in Indian folklore, where we meet a team of thieves living their best life. The creature this week is the Grugach, that hairy, naked man from Irish and Scottish folklore. Grugach apparently comes from an ancient Irish word, meaning hairy. And it's the one time that I encourage you, if you meet a hairy, naked man offering to help you out with your work, actually, you should take them up on their offer. They are famously hard workers and might literally work themselves to death for you. You should not encourage this, but they'll do it. One time, in Ballycastle, Ireland... The Grugach would thresh whatever wheat the farmer left in the granary each night, with the farmer leaving a set number of sheaves. Well, one night, the farmer accidentally just left the flail on top of a stack, not separating out what he wanted done. He found the Grugach dead from exhaustion the following morning, the Grugach thinking he had to do it all in one night. He buried the poor, naked monster with honor, and it's said that he mourned him long after, probably because he had to do all his own work from then on out. I haven't been able to find info on this, but apparently sometimes they're depicted as soft, large-headed creatures without bones, and they just roll down hillsides like a beanbag with a head. I'm not sure how they exist or what they do, but if you see it rolling at you, you probably want to get out of the way. One farmer's daughter, pitying the creature's nakedness and also probably tired of the creature's nakedness, made it a shirt. Like in Harry Potter, giving clothes to the fairy people was considered a way of dismissing them and the Grugak left the farm, emotionally hurt and weeping, wearing only a shirt, like a scorned, hairy Donald Duck. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 